Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Tom Gearing. Tom is CEO and co-founder of Cult Wines Limited, the world's leading fine wine investment company, with assets under management of 130 million pounds. Founded in 2007, Cult Wines provides physical wine, fine wine portfolio management services to private individuals, and clients of family offices, wealth managers, and private banks globally. Tom regularly features as a market commentator, appearing on media outlets such as Bloomberg, CNBC Europe, City AM, and more. He is a former runner-up on the BBC's Apprentice in 2012 as well. Thank you for joining us, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So the subject of today's episode is Arnold Palmer. Palmer was an American professional golfer, who is generally regarded as one of the greatest and most charismatic players in the sport's history. Nicknamed the King, his humble upbringing and plain-spoken nature, as well as his excellent play, made him the first superstar of the sport's television age, which began in the 1950s, give or take. Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and Gary Player made up golf's big three during the 1960s and are widely credited with popularizing and commercializing the sport around the world basically bringing it out of the country clubs or as much out of the country clubs as golf can be brought. In a career spanning more than six decades, he won 62 PGA Tour titles. He's the fifth on the tour's all-time victory list, trailing only Tiger Woods, Sam Snead, Jack Nicklaus, and Ben Hogan. He won seven major, major titles in a six-year period. He also won the PGA Tour Lifetime Achievement Award in 1998. In 1974, he was one of the 13 original inductees into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Palmer was also a savvy entrepreneur and marketer, building several businesses during his life. As president of Arnold Palmer Enterprises, he supervised the design and development of more than 300 golf courses worldwide, as well as golf clubs and clothing lines. And though he gave his name to a blend of iced tea and lemonade, Palmer was also a wine lover, investing in Napa's Luna Vineyards and later launching his own line of California wines. Palmer regularly played at the Transamerica Senior Classic at the Silverado Resort in Napa during the 80s and 90s. Wine dinners and winery visits were a big part of that event, and he became somewhat of an enophile. In 1996, Palmer was one of the initial investors in Napa's Luna Winery, becoming one of the first major celebrities to lend his name to a private label, a trend that's exploded in popularity in the years since. Luna soon created Arnold Palmer Red and Arnold Palmer Pinot Grigio in 2005, and then eventually launched a standalone brand, Arnold Palmer Wines. Palmer died on September 25th, 2016, shortly after his 87th birthday. His estate was valued at some $900 million, and was divided between his two daughters, 
his second wife, who got $10 million, eight employees, who got $25,000 each, and his charity, Arnie's Army, which received $10 million. Like the man himself, Palmer's wines are intended to be accessible, mostly weighing in at around $20 a bottle. However, there's a world of more expensive and valuable wines out there, and the market robust enough to make them legitimate investable commodities. So Tom, what are some of the very basics that clients and advisors should know about investing in fine wine? Yeah, thanks so much for that uh, really interesting um, backstory of Armand Palmer uh, and the introduction. So, look, I think when you're investing in, in fine wine, I mean, it's obviously, I think, for an advisor perspective, one of the you know main things to, to, to consider and be aware of is the fact that it's, you know, an unregulated investment. You know, in essence, buying wine as an investment is, you know, physically owning the underlying asset. So you're actually buying into cases and bottles of wines um, that you own and you know your belief is that the fundamental underlying characteristics of wine which is the demand supply and balance and when I say that what I mean is that some of the greatest wines in the world and the, and the wines that really uh, fall into this category of investment grade which we estimate to be around one percent of all the fine wine that's made would actually make it uh, you know investment investable wine um, these wines are made in very small quantities. So, you know, some of the best Burgundy Grand Cru's, they only make thousands of bottles in a vintage. You know, some of the Bordeaux Grand Cru class, say they might make 10,000 cases in a particular year. So these, these products are, uh, you know, luxury goods. Uh, they're rare, they're collectible, they're sought after, but they're also made in, in relatively small quantities. Um, so in essence, the reason why fine wine has always appreciated in value, the reason the actual bottle of wine, the physical case, the actual product has always increased in value is that you have a finite supply curve, you know, in a particular vintage, in a particular region from a particular producer, they make a certain amount of bottles and forevermore that that wine is in existence, it's dwindling in its supply in that every year people open those bottles, they consume those bottles and every time someone pops a cork, there's one less bottle of that in existence, right? So you're going to have a supply curve that's ever decreasing. But at the same time, wine has this unique quality that over time, as it matures with age, actually improves. And therefore, the demand for these wines increases as they become older and also as they become rarer. So those two uh, factors, you know, the increasing demand over time and the ever decreasing supply, inevitably inevitably for the greatest wines will increase their price obviously you know people ask well you know what happens in 50 years time when it turns to vinegar and of course that is also an element to consider you know these are you know the you know this is a this is a consumable product so it has a lifespan as well um but in essence uh you know they are the fundamentals of why wines will increase in value so when someone is considering it or when, you know, a private client advisor is considering, you know, wine as, a, as an asset class, what they've got to consider is that, you know, this is a specialist subject. This is a, uh, an investment in a tangible asset class. Um, so it does require expertise and, um, you know, certain, um, uh, you know, certain uh, functions to actually maintain the value of that wine in terms of the storage, the insurance and other factors of that nature. But, if done in the correct way and if managed properly throughout its entirety of its life, uh, investing in wine can be, can be one of the most rewarding investments anyone can make. Um, and if you have the right mindset and you have the right approach to why you're investing in wine, you can also mitigate, you know, the factors of, you know, the wine is unregulated and you do have these other, uh, factors to consider. 
Um, so I think that, you know, when uh, investing in wine, um, I would say that most people should consider it a medium to long term investment. You know, it's not something that, you know, you put your money into for a year and you play the market and you can sort of make a quick turn. You're not, you know, it's not the type of market where you're going to make a quick, uh, a quick profit on your, on your money. You know, you've got to have a medium to long term approach to it. Uh, you've got to be comfortable about investing in an asset class that is unregulated. You've got to work with experts or have at least the knowledge yourself so that you can maintain that investment and therefore maximize the profit available to you. Um, and if you can do all those things, then, you know, our research has shown that fine wine can actually lower your overall risk in a, an investment portfolio because the volatility of wine is pretty low. And it can also, and I'd probably say the most attractive element of investing in wine is it's a true diversifier. You know, the, the prices of wine do not move in the same direction as, as, as the general economy. And that has never been more, uh, that's not been highlighted more than in the last few months during the global pandemic. Now, as we've seen around the world, huge volatility in the stock markets and, of course, a lot of uncertainty in economies. Wine prices have actually uh, held, held, held steady. And in some, in some regards, you know, some prices in wines have actually increased in value. So investors in wine have actually seen much lower volatility and I've actually seen some price appreciation over the last two or three months. And that really is testament to wine's ability to help diversify an investment portfolio whilst also generating attractive returns. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, on this show, we've had several episodes that are about, I mean, for lack of a better term, passion assets. Um, yeah. And I think our most, you know, sometimes it's about collectibles, which I don't, I don't think is a particularly direct comparison. But, you know, I think in terms of investment, in terms of alternative investments, art is a lot of times fine art is put into the sort of same category as fine wine, but yeah. you know that mar that market is highly volatile and uh, notoriously so. And so I find it interesting that you know, even the most sort of uh, common comparison that I can come up with is it's actually completely different in terms of its market performance and, and sort of what you're you're looking for in a portfolio with it. Yeah, I think I think if you're looking at the comparisons to say, oh, the reason why say the art market is a lot more volatile is that sometimes you know the the, the real artist. Um, the real paintings that are going to sort of hit the right sort of target returns are often, you know, uh, you know, very few in existence, like much, much more minute than I said about thousands of bottles or thousands of cases. And you're, ta you're talking about maybe a handful of paintings by a particular artist a particular year. So, you know, they may only come to market, you know, once every few years, maybe once in a decade. Um, so there's a lot less market um, data available. There's a lot less trading. So, with wine, if you look at say um, the some of some of the most uh, sought after wines, you know Bordeaux, Grand Cru, Class A, first growths, you know such as Mouton Rochelle, Lafitte Rochelle, you know these wines across many many vintages are trading on a day to day basis. So you've actually got real market data available, and therefore you've got more liquidity and you've got more price transparency. And actually the spreads on wines are, are, are much are, are much lower than you would anticipate, especially for the most in demand wines. Um, so for all of those reasons, it's one of the things when you look at, say, art and wine as a, as a comparable, um, I often say with wine, you're actually buying into, obviously, excuse the pun, but you're buying into something that's a much more liquid alternative investment class than, well, say, art. And, and, and also the, uh, you know, the barriers to entry, um, you know, the barriers to entry are a lot lower. And when I mean that, I say, again, you know, if you look at, say, the art market and the type of uh, paintings you might have to invest into to make to make the returns that, that you're looking for. Um, you might have to be spending you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, right? 
Now, the thing about wine is even the most expensive wines in the world, the most sought after, the rarest, you know, you're talking about maybe some Burgundies like Domaine de la Romani Conti, Romani Conti, but even, like, this is expensive, right? I mean, they, you know, you can buy a bottle of Romani Conti for around 20,000 US dollars. Of course, you know, that's a huge amount of wine for a bottle, a huge amount of money for a bottle of wine. But comparably, um, that's the most expensive bottle of wine that's available on the market. So, you know, most investors, uh, even a retail investor, theoretically could buy the most expensive bottle of wine you can buy on the market as an investment. So um, there's a slightly higher level of democratization when it comes to wine versus, say, you know, art or collectible artworks or even classic cars, which require a, a much higher sort of entry point and have and offer a lot less liquidity when it comes to, you know, valuations, uh, tradable information. And one of the other things that a lot of people don't realize is the fine wine market actually has a uh, recognized exchange. Um, so there was actually a wine exchange uh, set up uh, in the early 2000s called LiveX. Um, and that actually trades uh, and, and reports on a day-to-day -day basis across 50,000 uh, wines, uh, you know, reporting their daily price changes. Um, so that actually provides the market with a lot of liquidity as well. Interesting. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of barrier to entry because I think um, when clients and advisors sort of think about you know, wine investment, uh, it's very easy for them to picture the end game, right? Where it's like, oh, yes, I have, you know, this wine cellar full of valuable wines and I enjoy it and I get to show it off. But I feel like the uh, the entry point is really sort of confusing for a lot of people, including myself. Um, so if I'm a client or an advisor, I have a, if I'm an advisor and my client walks in expressing some interest in investing in wine, what do those first steps look like? Is it just them going out and buying wine and keeping it in their basement? Are there are you investing, you're sending it like almost like stocks where you're sending it to a warehouse and it never comes out of the warehouse, you just own a piece of it? Um, like what are these, I guess, how does the actual ownership and buying in process, what does it look like? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll answer it two ways. I'll answer it more generally, which is not involving cult wine. So just generally, if you wanted to invest in wine, what's the best way to approach it? And to tackle that question first, when you're investing in wine, um, it's very important that you undertake all of the measures to make sure that you can guarantee the provenance of the wine, so guarantee the authenticity, the, the, the traceable history. Also very important to ensure that you uh, maintain the storage of that wine in a temperature control, humidity control conditions. And of course, you know, if you're really investing wine seriously, investing maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, let's say, um, you know, you need to have enough storage space to facilitate uh, that sort of size of collection. Um, so our advice uh, to uh, investors wherever they are in the world is to seek out professional storage facilities. And one of the big advantages for uh, investors around the world is that in Europe, and in particular the UK, we actually have a, a bonded warehouse system. Now, what that means is that means a warehousing facility that is exempt of any taxes or duties or tariffs. So, for example, in the US currently, if you import wines into it, from the EU into the US, so if you're buying a Bordeaux wine, for example, the US government currently have a 25% tariff in, in, implemented. But there is a way for a US investor to actually circumvent those tariffs because if you buy the wines and actually store them in one of these tax-free locations, in a tax-free bonded warehouse, uh, first of all, it's an unregulated asset. So you don't have to report it on your IRS because you're buying a physical case of wine. Uh, you, the entity from which you buy the asset doesn't have to be FATCA regulated. So you don't have any of the sort of restrictions that you would have as a normal US investor investing in a financial service or a financial instrument outside of the US. And you get the benefit of having your wine stored 
in a professional warehouse where you can guarantee the authenticity, you can guarantee the provenance, you can guarantee the conditions that the wine's kept in, which means that when you come to resell that wine, you're actually going to maximize the value of it. It's actually going to be more attractive for, for, for wine buyers all around the world. So when you get that re to that resale point, you're actually going to open yourself up to a bigger global market than you would do if you stored them in your home. Plus, of course, you haven't had to deliver the wines to your house, your home seller, you haven't had to pay for the US tariffs or the import duties or taxes you might have had to pay. So you're buying and investing tax-free. So in essence, you're maximizing the returns you're possibly going to make from your investment. So in essence, if you're approaching wine seriously as an investment, it should always, always be approached from the perspective of buying the wine, storing it in a professional warehousing location, and preferably one that offers a tax-free um, uh, location that you can keep it for your entirety of your investment. And in terms of you know how we work as a business, you know we are we we are investment managers first and foremost. You know we're an investment manager. We just happen to manage an asset that's wine. Of course, we you know you mentioned it earlier, passion. Of course, we have a passion for wines. We have expertise in wine, but we are uh, you know we are. We are we have a vested interest in our clients' portfolios you know, increasing in value. So we align our interests with our clients. So at the point that a client comes to us and says, you know, I'm looking to invest a hundred thousand US dollars, what we do is our first step is understand the client. You know, what type of investor are you? Are you cautious? Are you got you, you, what's your appetite to risk? Uh, what length of investment term? Do you have any knowledge of wine? Is this something you know that you have no knowledge of? You have some knowledge of? Is it something you've invested before? Investment term, capital, you know, all these all these sort of elements. And based upon each individual's objectives, we will then build a personalized portfolio strategy um, tailored to that individual's objectives to deliver the returns um, that they're looking to get out of the out of the portfolio. So again, we're set up to be, you know, we have an investment committee, we have a top-down asset management approach, and we have portfolio managers. And those portfolio managers manage your account on your behalf, you know, and they will advise you throughout the life cycle about when to buy, when to sell. And we will undertake all of those processes for you. So we provide an end-to-end -end solution. And in essence, we exist to help uh, people to invest in the wine market who, A, maybe not have, maybe don't have the expertise or the knowledge, maybe don't have the necessary connections or access to the wines that they want to buy, uh, and, and simply maybe don't have enough time to dedicate to building a profitable wine collection. So we're here to really uh, simplify the process uh, and deliver uh, an enjoyable uh, an enjoyable experience from end to end. That's interesting, and honestly, I, I never even thought about the idea that that most you know, if you're really seriously getting into investing in wines, obviously there's valuable wines made in the U.S. But if you're a U.S. based person, uh, just by the very nature, you're going to be importing things from France and Germany and Italy. And it's obvious saying it out loud, but I think these are the sort of questions that you know, people who haven't really thought about this are, are not even you know, it's not even going to occur to them. But also, it seems like there's a give and take here, right? There's a bit of a struggle in that if you're going to do this oh, investing in wine most efficiently and so I guess the best way, it really is treated like a traditional investment where you're not really handling the bottles yourself. You're kind of getting a statement, right? It's just similar to owning stocks where you know you own this physical thing, but interacting with the physical thing you own, maybe not so much. As opposed to, I think on the other end, you have, a, I don't want to say more irresponsible, but you sort of have the side where people want to have it, but they also part of their having it, this investment is being able to show it off. Um, so like, how do you reconcile the, those two, I guess, impulses that I think people have in, in, when they show interest in this kind of thing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we, um, in terms of the way that we work with our clients, we we completely understand the sort of romanticism of wine and the you know the additional motiva- motivations. I mean, if you if you split the motivations from a from an investor into say emotional and rational, from the rational side, they're looking at an asset class purely and coldly as an investment where they can diversify, lower their risk, and generate alternative sources of return. And then from the emotional side. They might like wine. They might want to learn more about the product. They might want to be able to show off to their friends about the collection that they have, and that is a challenge for us because obviously we are de-romanticizing the product, um, but we do understand that that's a big element to collecting wine. So the way that we um, the way that we approach that is that for our clients, we uh, first and foremost uh, we, we you know we have amazing relationships with some of the most famous wineries uh, in the world from Italy, Burgundy. Bordeaux, Champagne, uh, as well as Napa Valley, getting direct allocations of some of the most sought-after wines globally. And because of those relationships, we actually have direct access to some of the winemakers and the owners of these of these places. So we um, organise events, we organise uh, vineyard tours. Uh, we can actually curate uh, trips for individual clients to different regions and actually pick out some of their favourite places to visit. And for us, that's really important because. Of course, it's a it's an investment. It's a financial instrument that you want to generate a profit from. But also at the same time, you know, it is something to enjoy. It's something to experience. And our relationships and our expertise mean that we can facilitate that for our clients. So we really want to make that as part of the overall um, the overall uh, experience of investing in wine. And second of all, from a um, from a sort of uh, what's the word sort of the physicality perspective. Yeah, you know, there is a disconnect between, you know, one of our clients who might be based in, you know, Kansas City, who's got $200,000 in a wine portfolio that he might never see. That's in a warehouse that's in a part of England he's never heard of. And apart from a line on his uh, mobile when he logged into our online portfolio management tool, you know, you know, there isn't really much to it than that. So, you know, first and foremost, we try and bring our clients, you know, into the process a little bit more. You know, they can, you know, if they ever come to the UK, they can actually visit the warehouse, they can see their wines. But we also have our own photographic studio. Uh, and if a client requests, we can take photos of the wines, we can serve those uh, photos to them online through their portfolio management tool. So they then can create that sort of element of showing off what they own or having that enjoyment of having that physical ownership, even if it, it might not necessarily be through a touch and a feel and maybe through uh, a digital platform. But that, in a way, uh, brings our clients a little bit closer to the actual product that they own. And the other thing to mention is, look, if you're successful and we're successful in managing an investment portfolio for you, and let's say we can generate 10% returns for you annually after your fees. If, say, you invest 100000 and after five years, uh, you know, you've made, let's say, net return of you know, 50000 US dollars. There's no reason to say that you couldn't actually, uh, uh, you know, receive some of that, uh, receive some of that capital in wine. And some of our clients do do that. You know, they use their investment portfolio as a way to actually access and drink some of the greatest wines in the world um, for free, in in in, uh, in effect. So, you know, because you physically own the underlying asset, and this is a really important point because you know some of your listeners out there might. Uh, be aware or have heard of wine funds before. And I think one of the great elements of what we provide versus a wine fund is that people actually do own these wines. They, they do have title and ownership of them. So in a fund, you know, you have 5,000 investors, uh, you know, 100,000 US dollars in a $50 million fund, um, but they all own a share of a wine. You know, if you've got a bottle of Petrus uh, in that fund, you can't split it between 5,000 people. 
Now, with an individualized portfolio, everyone owns that underlying asset. So there's no reason why uh, our guy in Kansas City who invested $200,000 in a few years' time, if he's made a tidy profit, there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't actually ship that wine directly to his door for him to enjoy with his friends. So, you know, there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of experience that can be uh, had even through investing in, in a wine portfolio. That's very interesting, and yeah, you, you kind of superseded my next question by addressing the wine funds issue. But um, you know, at the risk of getting too in the weeds, at the beginning, at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about the sort of the interesting, uh, I guess, value growth curve that that wines have, where they sort of are growing in value constantly from the time they're made, and then they become vinegar. What does that look like? What does that mean? I guess at that end point, is does it just pour over for pardon the pun into some you know now now it's the high-end vinegar market that we're investing in or does it just become worth zero like, i guess what does that that end point look like where you're tr- where you get towards that end of that lifetime curve yeah it's a, it's a great great question it's something that comes up a lot uh and you know it's a real key part of our of the way that we analyze and evaluate the market now every different grape variety in every different region have different uh maturity profiles so, you know, Pinot Noir made from a Premier Cru might have a 20-year maturity profile where, depending on the producer, you might uh, be something more like a, uh, like a hockey stick at the beginning and then it's going to peak and then it's going to drop off on the other side. And then you might have, you know, in essence, you can have loads of different types of maturity curves for these types of wines. So as part of our um, in-house propriety uh, trading algorithms, we implement, um, uh, we ingest data around uh, drinking windows and we ingest data around optimal drinking windows, as in when they're going to hit their peak maturity. And we build in those risk factors. So what we do is like, for example, you know, if you say buy, uh, you know, 1982 Bordeaux now, you know, what is the additional risk you're taking on for the potential profit that we're generating? And that's what's important for us. We don't look at it purely from a, you buy at this price, you sell at that price. We look at it from the perspective of what is the risk, uh, risk adjusted returns of investing in this wine now. And that doesn't mean we completely eliminate the potential of investing in a mature wine because, for example, and this is a very extreme example, last year, the world record price was achieved for a bottle of wine in auction. It actually happened in New York, um, and it was a, it was a, uh, I think it was a Christie's auction, uh, but forgive me if I'm wrong, it might be Sotheby's, but I think it was Christie's or Sotheby's in New York last year. A bottle of 1945, uh, so end of World War II, uh, World War II uh, era of vintage, of Domaine de la Romani Conti, of which they only made 600 bottles for, of in that year, is the last known guaranteed uh, authenticity provenance bottle. But that one bottle of that wine sold at auction for half a million dollars for one bottle of wine. The last time that came up in auction, which was uh, in 1991, it sold for $11,000. So between 1991 and 2019, it gone from 11000 to half a million dollars. Now, what's the contents of that bottle going to be like? You know, How enjoyable was that going to drink? How many people in the market are willing to pay half a million dollars for that? At that point in time, are you investing in wine or are you investing in a historical artifact? Are you investing in a rarity? You know, it's, it's a gray area, of course. Some people may argue that the enjoyment of that wine from a pure qualitative perspective has, has finished or at least has, has, has reduced significantly. But other people may say that, you know, it's the elixir of gods, you know, to be able to drink a 1945 Romani Conti. And of course, there's that, uh, you know, competition between wine collectors to own the rarest and most, you know, sought after or what we call in the wine world, the unicorn wine. Um, so 
in essence, you know, we have to evaluate all of these factors. So, for example, the older the wine and the closer it is to its maturity level and the more risk there is in you buying that wine and it potentially going over the hill and actually reducing in quality and therefore demand coming off for that particular wine, we have to weigh it up in terms of, okay, will it then become, you know, a Veblen good where actually, regardless of the quality of the wine, there will still be demand in the market for this. And are the projected returns high enough to take on the additional risk of investing in a very mature wine. Now, you know, these are all the things that we take, we would analyze on behalf of our clients and then we will submit, you know, our recommendation based on, you know, the facts that are available to us. But, you know, coming full circle, you know, back to the right at the start, you know, in my, in my experience and in my own personal, you know, uh, my personal professional opinion, you know, investing in wine to make the best returns more often than not, you know, more often than not does involve buying wines you know, within their sort of first five to 10 years of their, of their life, uh, lifespan. And, you know, the wines that we typically invest in, you know, the best wines in the world, these are made to last for 25 to 50 years easily, you know, easily 25 to 50 years. So if, if we, if we ascertain that most investors will have a five to 10 year investment horizon and you're generally buying wines that are within a first zero to 10 years of their life, the danger of you buying something that is then going to seriously drop off in terms of its maturity curve and turn into vinegar are almost zero. So, you know, there's a lot of ways you can mitigate that. And then, you know, as I said, that's not necessarily ruling out buying these more sought after rarer items. It's just having a balanced approach. So if I was someone with a million dollars invested in the wine market, I might think to myself, yeah, actually, you know, maybe have 10 to 20% of my portfolio in the trophy, highly sought after wines and maybe have a high degree of risk attached to them. But, you know, for every one that might go slightly over the hill and I lose a value, if I get a DRC 1945, you know, the returns could be 100x. So, you know, you can afford for some of those maybe not to hit the right marks. And of course, across a diversified portfolio where the other 80 to 90% of the allocation of the capital are in wines of a younger age, of different grape varieties across different regions, you're easily going to, to uh, you're easily going to spread that risk across your portfolio. Yeah, we're just about running out of time here, Tom. But this has just been a stupendously interesting topic to talk about. And <laughs> I think that's why we're, we're seeing more and more clients ask about it, and I, I, I'm going to imagine that can only bode well for your future business interests. But um, as I like to do at the end of every episode, and just I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, and just ask you to leave us with if there was just one piece of advice that you know the newbies the the advisor who just got asked who's looking to get into this they, they just had a client walk in and ask about it there's one piece of advice you can offer for those people on, on getting started what what would that be that is a great question one piece of advice uh advisor client coming to them i'm interested in investing in wine um i'm gonna say do your due diligence unfortunately the wine market has had a number of examples not just in the uk or in europe in, in the us as well there's high profile ones uh, of uh, you know unscrupulous individuals who have taken advantage of investors and have either not delivered the wine or sold them something that didn't exist and you know I don't want to say say the name Ponzi scheme because it's going to scare people off but there have been instances of that within the wine market so I would say to a client advisor whose number one priority is looking after their client's interest right you, whatever you do do your due diligence because you know one small step working with the wrong people who don't know what they're doing or maybe don't have the financial structure to back up the services they're providing 
you know, you could lose a client and all, all the rest of their investments put together if you give them one bad piece of advice or we recommend the wrong type of advisor. So I would say that, you know, first piece of advice to an advisor, do due diligence. You know, don't just go blindly into this. Um, it does require expertise, but it can be extremely rewarding. And, you know, I would, I would encourage anyone to look at it if they're looking to diversify their portfolio. But, you know, be, be, be careful and make sure you write, work with the right people. But if you do, you know, it can be fantastic. So Tom, before we go, are there uh, any sort of wines or any advice that, uh, that are especially good right now that you could tell us about? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that. We, we are actually uh, currently in the middle of the Bordeaux on Premier campaign. Uh, what that means is the new release of the new vintage 2019 uh, from Bordeaux. And it's one of the most unique and exciting opportunities for investors um, in, in probably the last uh, last decade. Um, the pandemic has meant that uh, chateaus have had to reduce prices by up to 30%. But at the same time, uh, this has been an absolutely outstanding vintage in terms of quality. So it is a unique opportunity for new investors and people that know a lot about wine and collectors and even you know just general drinkers to buy into a vintage that offers supreme drinking ex uh, quality and experience, but at very affordable prices. So uh, a great vintage all around. So if anyone's interested, it's a great time to be looking at the moment. Well, thanks so much for being such a great guest, Tom. Thanks so much for, for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, for our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.